0: Hello and welcome to episode 348 of the UK True Crime Podcast. I'm Adam. This week we return to the northeast of England and Sunderland as we look at a series of chilling attacks. Today's show is sponsored by Dirty. Ever heard of mushroom coffee? Neither had I. But since discovering Dirty, I've never looked back. Dirty creates delicious super blends which are takes of your favourite daily drinks such as coffee and matcha and then combines them with functional mushrooms and other adaptogens to leave you feeling focused, calm, and with long-lasting energy. They're delicious and they're so easy to make. For a limited time, my listeners get an exclusive 10% off offer. Just head to Dirty.com, that's D-I-R-T-E-A.com, and use the code Crime to get 10% off your first order. It's no secret anymore that you can get incredible health benefits by harnessing the power of mushrooms. In fact, it's been used in traditional Chinese medicine for centuries. Did you know that every breath we take, we actually inhale mushroom spores? It's true. Dirty has done rigorous testing and development to provide the purest form of mushroom drinks to support your sleep, focus and overall well-being. I found it's made a big difference for me in the morning when I've replaced normal coffee with mushroom coffee which absolutely helps with energy and focus. So why don't you give it a try too? Functional mushrooms can truly change your life. Get the purest mushroom benefits out there by heading to dirty.com and use the code truecrime to get 10% off. That's d-i-r-t-e-a.com and use the code truecrime to get 10% off your first order today. It's time to get down and dirty. God, I enjoyed saying that. <laughs> A bit too much, maybe. Anyway, let's set some context for today's story with our guest, the month and year game. Top of the UK charts was Adamski with Killer. At number one in the US was the person who used to look like Madonna with Vogue. And in Australia, <laughs> the top album this month was Paula Abdul with Forever Your Girl. Oh, I get slated on Sony reviews for laughing at my own jokes, but hey. Who cares? In the news this month, Boris Yeltsin, who liked the odd sherry, was elected President of Russia. New York City's Zodiac Killer shot his third victim, Joseph Ponce. Billy Cartman, a 33 year old grouter, became the sixth Briton to die in the construction of the Channel Tunnel when he was crushed by heavy machinery. And in sport, Crystal Palace and Man United drew 3 3 in the FA Cup final with the Manchester Club taking the replay. I remember watching both games when working in a bar in Malacca, in Malaysia, as part of travelling. Great days without a care in the world. Ah, and finally, the highest grossing film this month was Pretty Woman. Okay, so did you guess the month and year? It was May 1990. Of course it was. Don't worry if this was before your time, Next week, we are coming back very close to the present day. The port city of Sunderland is on the northeast coast, about 280 miles northeast of London and 130 miles southeast of the Scottish capital, Edinburgh. Author Lewis Carroll spent much of his childhood in the city of his family, and it's thought that Sunderland's coastline in the Whitburn area inspired Walrus and the Carpenter. For over six centuries, Sunderland had a booming shipbuilding industry which during this period was home to 400 registered shipyards. This led the city to be named the largest shipbuilding town in the world. Of course, it's now very different. Sundon also has a dark true crime history and was the birthplace of Mary Ann Cotton. Remember her? She is believed to be Britain's first serial killer and despite being only charged for one murder, which saw her executed in Durham in 1873, She is believed to have killed 21 people, including three husbands and 11 children. And today, we look at another serial killer from the area. On the 18th of May 1990, 14-year-old Simon Martin went to the local park to play football and he promised his mum Jean he would be home for tea at 6 o'clock, just an hour later. However, he didn't return home. At 8pm his parents called the police and went to search for their son but sadly his lifeless and semi-naked body was discovered on the 26th of May by children playing in a derelict house nearby. He'd been strangled, he'd suffered a serious head injury, blood was spattered on the walls and semen was found on his body. He'd clearly met a terrifying death. Simon came from a very close and supportive family and his mum, dad and brother were devastated by the news, of course, as Simon had everything to live for, just 14 when he was killed. A number of locals were interviewed in connection with Simon's death, and detectives finally believed they had a break in the case when they arrested 16-year-old Alvin White. He used to hang out in the derelict house where Simon was found, and they found one of his fingerprints there. Alvin was bailed, and several months later, due to the lack of any evidence suggesting his guilt, he was no longer a suspect. In time, as we hear so much on this podcast, the investigation into Simon's death was wound down as new priorities took precedence. Then three years later, 18-year-old student Thomas Kelly was found dead in Sunderland. He was described as kind, helpful, and someone who loved life. He joined the Territorial Army, and was looking forward to his weekend away with them, but he never got to make that trip as his young life was brutally cut short. On the morning of the 26th of November 1993, Thomas had left the family home in the morning for college, but he never made it home that evening. His body was found in a shed on an abandoned allotment in the Fulwell area of the city. Thomas's body was set on fire, and a container of glue was left close to his body. Despite his family stating that Thomas being the allotment was totally out of the ordinary, detectives at Northumbria Police did not believe that Thomas had been murdered, and labelled his death as mysterious but not suspicious. The initial pathology reports also struggled to determine what had happened to him. And with little evidence, the police dismissed the idea that Thomas had been murdered, and they believed his tragic death was caused by glue sniffing. After all, the facts fitted. He was in a remote shed, and glue was found by his body. How the family found out that Thomas was dead is pretty hard to believe. He was missing, and they were waiting for news, desperately concerned. His sister Lindsay later described that the police had found Thomas's front door key on his body, and this is what happened next. Lindsay said, They told us nothing about the key. There was no warning of what they were doing. My mam and dad and me were sitting in our front room waiting for news when we heard a key scraping into the Yale lock. Mam and dad jumped up. There was a moment of pure hope that somehow Thomas was walking back through the door. Then it opened and a policeman walked in with the key in his hand and said, it must be him then. That's how we found out that my brother was dead. The lack of compassion was astonishing. They interviewed my dad and asked him if he hit his children and whether he liked me more than Thomas. Of course, these were very different days. But instead of hunting for a murderer who had just struck for the second time, Northumbria police issued warnings to teenagers about the dangers of sniffing glue close to fire. On the 4th of February 1994, fire crews were battling a raging fire in an abandoned house in the Roker area near the Sunderland seafront when they came across a grisly discovery. They'd found the severely burned body of a 15-year-old who'd been in a deserted house. This was David Hansen. And despite David's death being disturbingly similar to Thomas's, the police did not believe it to be murder and the pathology report was found to be inconclusive. So unbeknown to the police the killer had got away with murder for a third time. And just a few weeks later, on the 25th of February, the murderer struck again and killed another teenage boy, 15-year-old David Grief. He was found again in an abandoned allotment shed just 50 yards or so from where Thomas Kelly was found and his body was set on fire. Coincidentally, David Hanson and David Grief were classmates at the nearby Monk Wearmouth Academy. Before his death, David Grief had even chipped into a fund to buy a wreath for his murdered friend. But he never made it to his friend's funeral, as he vanished the day before. With solvents being discovered by the bodies of the third and fourth victims, police assumed that all the victims had been caught up in solvent abuse. This belief was heightened as the three victims were all at the same school which led the media to label the school a drug school. For many of the residents of Sunderland the late 80s and early 90s, it was a really tough time. With the closures of mines and shipyards, many people had lost their jobs and the city had high levels of unemployment. But despite the struggles faced during this period, the committee stuck together and they knew that the recent deaths of the three teenage boys in a short period were not a coincidence. This was echoed by the headmaster of their school. He fought off the stigma that was being attached to his school and students, he said. I became very angry, first of all, for the parents of the boys who had this label. But also it labelled the rest of the students and the school as well as a drug school. He highlighted that the vast majority of those in the community feared something much more sinister was going on. And he feared that these deaths were not tragic accidents. We really need to just pause for a moment and talk about solvent abuse. We don't hear about it, or I don't hear about it so much anymore. But at the time of the murders, solvent abuse was a big thing sweeping across the UK, and it was particularly prevalent in poorer areas of the community. Solvents such as glue and aerosol canisters are easily available on every high street, and the effects vary with each individual, but the high gain from them can last between 30 and 40 minutes, and it can be really extreme, including hallucinations and death. In fact, the abuse of solvents took the lives of over 1,000 people, mainly those under 18, between 1982 and 1992. The three families of the last three murders we've discussed, that's David Grief, David Hanson and Thomas Kelly, the families were convinced that their sons had not died of substance abuse, but they'd been murdered. And along with the local media, they campaigned together to pressure the police into investigating the three deaths. And everything changed several months later, when a new detective took over the case. David Wilson, no, not him, re-examined the deaths of the three teenagers, and his findings would send the community into shock. As the team re-examined the evidence from the three different pathologists... David Wilson looked at the case from a different perspective. He was extremely passionate about his job, curious, inquisitive, and he wanted to do everything he could to help get justice for the families and remove a potential sadistic killer off the streets of Sunderland. He was certain that all three deaths were linked, as not only were all the crime scenes similar, but they'd all attended the same school. In the summer of 1994, David Wilson asked for a second post-mortem on all the bodies. The results from the second post-mortem confirmed what David Wilson had initially believed. All victims actually had ligature marks around their necks, leading him to believe they were murdered and he was looking for a serial killer. Upon a search of the abandoned house where David Hanson was murdered, detectives found fingerprints and a footprint which matched a local man Stephen Griefson, who'd been involved in a burglary there three months before. Witnesses then came forward to say that Griefson had been seen with David Grief on the night that he was killed. And by late September 1994, detectives had found more evidence linking Greaveson to the murder of David Grief. Body fluids found on his body were a match to Greaveson. Had they found their man... Stephen Greaveson was arrested for the three murders in 1995 and detectives delved into his background in more detail. Born in December 1970, Stephen was one of seven children his mum Kathy had with her husband and he was described very much as a mummy's boy. Cathy said that he was fine up until about the age of 11 when he began getting into trouble. His parents had a violent relationship with Stephen's dad hitting Kathy and she retaliated. So Stephen experienced a lot of violence in the family home. His first experience with the police was a relatively minor one. At 11, he was taken to court after he opened a packet of nails and stole one. At the time of the court case, Cathy was by now a single mum, and during this period, the courts would remove the children from the care of single parents if they got into trouble. So Stephen was taken to a children's home in Carlisle in the Northwest of England, where he stayed until he was eighteen years old, he would sometimes come home at the weekend, and his mum would travel with social services to see her son, according to Cathy. Stephen never spoke about his time at the children's home, but it later emerged that whilst he was there, like so many others who suffered a hellish existence in these institutions, Stephen had suffered both physical and sexual abuse. During his youth, Stephen made money from sex work and on one occasion, while doing this, he was a victim of a horrendous sexual assault. When Stephen turned 18, he returned home permanently and his offending increased. He was using a variety of drugs as well as taking sleeping tablets and inhaling solvents. His theft, his theft habit escalated and he would buy and steal cars with stolen money. His crimes were so prevalent that his family home would always be getting searched for stolen goods and Stephen was in and out of prison and he racked up 38 convictions by the age of 19. But not of this nature. And in 1996, Stephen Griefson faced trial at Leeds Crown Court for the murder of David Grief, David Hanson and Thomas Kelly. He denied the murders during the six-week trial, saying that all three deaths were accidents. He said he had killed the three teenagers unintentionally while he was threatening them to make sure they did not tell anybody that he was bisexual. When the trial opened, the prosecution claimed that grieveson was gay but was either unable or unwilling to accept his sexuality and that he murdered the three teenagers for two reasons. One was to prevent them from revealing that he demonstrated his sexual preference to them. The other was simply because he enjoyed killing them and firing their bodies. It was revealed that Grieveson was actually interviewed by the police after each of the killings, but it was not until seven months afterwards that Northumbria police launched the investigation which led to him being charged. This was because the initial post-mortem examinations did not show the causes of death and it took two of the country's best pathologists to establish that all three young men had been strangled. After just four hours of deliberation, the jury found Grieveson guilty of murder and he was sentenced to life in prison and ordered to serve a minimum of 35 years in prison. Like during the rest of the trial, Grieveson showed no emotion at all. The judge highlighted the sadistic nature of Grieveson's crime at his sentencing, saying... You murdered Thomas Kelly after finding an efficient and effective way to kill him and concealed the evidence by setting fire to his body. And so far from being appalled at what you had done, when the opportunity arose to repeat the experience, you did it again. It could well be that one reason, perhaps the only reason, was that you liked killing. By this stage you were plainly evil and even more plainly dangerous. Mercifully. He was soon in custody and the killings stopped. Speaking after the verdict, Thomas's dad said, It's a great relief this monster is off the streets, so no other family will have to go through what we faced. Three years into his sentence, Grieveson, who was still claiming his innocence, was arrested and questioned over the murder, the first murder we spoke about today, Simon Martin, in the May of 1990. And four years later, Greaveson wrote a letter to the victim liaison service in which he confessed to murdering the three teenagers he'd been found guilty of murdering, but still denied culpability for the murder of Simon. It wasn't until 2012 that Greaveson finally confessed to Simon's murder. He stated, I needed to tell police, it has haunted me for 20 years. And when interviewed by police, Grieveson said he'd been playing football with Simon on that day in May 1990 and then they went to a derelict building nearby. He said they engaged in a sex act and he became scared that his sexuality would be revealed. He told police, After I was finished I got scared. I started shouting at him not to tell anyone. I just flipped for a minute and I started strangling him. I didn't let go and the next thing he was on the bed. I think there was a rock or something and I smashed his head in. Following the murder, Grieveson took items of Simon's clothing and discarded some in the bin and his footwear in the sea. After a two-week trial in 2013, Greaveson denied murdering Simon. He admitted he was responsible for his death, but he claimed a defence of diminished responsibility. The court heard that Simon went out to play football at 5pm and was told to be home for his tea by 6 Seaman linked to Grieveson by DNA testing in 2000 was found on Simon's body. It also transpired that Grieveson, who worked in a fairground, had been interviewed by police three days after Simon's body had been found after he'd been seen leaving the park with Simon. He told police they'd walked through newsagents and when he went inside the shop, Simon waited outside. He added that by the time he left the shop, Simon had disappeared. The court also heard that Greaveson had told a woman who visited him in jail that the need to kill took him over when he murdered all four of the teenagers. Greaveson was surrounded by five guards throughout the trial but again he showed no hints of emotion as the details of his terrible crimes were told to the jury. His experts he called argued he suffered from a severe mental condition that led to him killing Simon. Professor Simon Perkins told the court that Greaveson had psychopathic traits which mixed with vulnerabilities make for a very dangerous combination, adding His lack of emotion, callousness and lack of remorse are elements that would have contributed to his ability to kill and kill more than once. The jury didn't believe Grieveson that Simon's death was an accident. He was convicted of murder and handed another 35-year sentence. The judge told him you are now 43 and in 1990 you murdered Simon Martin, a 14-year-old boy who had become your friend. This was an horrendous attack, a murder of an innocent young boy, groomed by you and lured for your sexual pleasure. Speaking outside court, Simon's dad Robert said, It has been a traumatic and life-changing experience for all the families. Now Grieveson will spend the rest of his days behind bars. No other family should suffer the heartache we've had to go through, and I'm sure the families behind me agree. Our sons were taken away from us by a cruel man whose despicable actions cost four boys their lives. These were innocent boys whose actions led in no way to their devastating and tragic deaths. In February 2014, Grievesome was arrested on suspicion of the murder of 7-year-old Nicky Allen who was found murdered in a derelict building in Sunderland in October 1992, a story I covered in an earlier episode of this podcast. Despite the victim being female and stabbed to death, the blunt force injuries to her head were similar to those found on Simon Martin. But after being questioned, the detective stated that Grieveson was to face no further action in their inquiries. And you'll recall that just this year, actually, 55-year-old David Boyd was found guilty. Nikki's murder. So what do you make of what we've heard today? It's uh, again quite shocking, quite terrible case isn't it? And what's made even more shocking is that if he'd been found after he'd killed the first person, Simon Martin, would the other three boys have lived? That must be terrible for the families to live with. Finally at last the four families of the murdered teenagers do have justice but it was after such a long period of disappointing failures by the authorities. From the original pathologist failing to spot strangulation marks, to the police falsely believing the teenagers died from solvent abuse. But we should say here, we're not here to slate the police and the other authorities who have a tough job to do, they get it wrong sometimes, they get it right a hell of a lot of the time. The strength and resilience of the grieving families was apparent as they came together with the local media to push the police into reinvestigating their children's death. Sometimes as parents and as friends close to those that we love, we know, don't we? We know what's happened. And despite what anybody else may tell us, we sometimes have to pursue it ourselves because we know that what we're being told officially just doesn't ring true to us. And that was the case today. And at least the four families had justice. But even so, these four young men, all still teenagers, murdered at the hands of Stephen Greaveson. And for what? Our thoughts go out of their families for this terrible, terrible waste of life. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of the UK True Crime podcast. To discuss this story and any other aspect of UK true crime, please just head to the Facebook group where there's over 91,000 of us. And to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime. It's a great site. It's a great community. There's loads of bonus episodes, exclusive content, and of course, a competition for an immersive crime game. Get your free copy that closes this week. So get over to patreon.com slash UKTrueCrime and join the fun. Okay, so that's all from me for another week. So until we speak again on Tuesday, Tuesday next week, please do take it easy. And most of all, despite despite all the others, stay classy. Cheerio for now. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.